And this evening we are heading into Acts 16, uh, where we will in continue with Paul's journey. Uh, now he's been divided from Barnabas, uh, and Paul and Silas are going to, to have some adventures of their own. Uh, but before we join them on their adventures, let's start with uh, prayer. Um, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Christ our God, open our minds and open our hearts to your word. Uh, allow us to see your glory as you work through the power of the Holy Spirit in your apostles uh, and the ways in which you moved them, that you strengthened them and led them. So uh, open our hearts to your lead in our own lives and how you strengthen us, how you comfort us and how you give us words to speak to those uh, that we are around. It is to you we give glory, honor and worship and to your Father and to your Holy Spirit now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. 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 Who would like to start reading? I say Philip because Philip hasn't been here for a few weeks, so... Philip, you're it. Here, here. All right. So, he's like, great. <laughs> Can you do the first five verses? First five, sure. And he came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observ observance the decisions which had been reached by the apostles and elders who were at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Hmm. What did Paul do? He circumcised him. What? I thought we just threw, threw a long discussion about how that's not necessary. I give up. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, obviously, Timothy is the Timothy uh, that we know that Paul uh, writes letters to, First and Second Timothy. I know there's a school out there that would debate that those are authentically Pauline, but we are just going to ignore them. Um, Timothy, of course, uh, has Jewish and Greek heritage. So with what we uh, covered in Acts 15, uh, where basically the churches, the Church of Jerusalem comes together, we'll just do a little brief recap right here. Uh, we've already had the vision that Peter has gotten to go ahead. He stands up at the council that occurs in Acts 15 in Jerusalem after there have been some troublemakers from Jerusalem who went to Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. They have the council. Peter stands up and witnesses as well to what Paul and Barnabas are talking about. And the council decides that is seems good to the Holy Spirit and to them that uh, it is great that God has incorporated the Gentiles into the people of God, and there should be rejoicing about that. As we've seen through the past few chapters, the rejoicing of the people of God when they hear the works of God among the Gentiles. 
Uh, and then they say, you know, you should remain chaste, uh, don't strangle animals, don't drink blood, and stay away from idolatry. I believe those are the four things uh, that are said. Yeah. Um, they also say that it's not necessary for a Greek who converts, a uh, Gentile to convert, to be circumcised. So what is Paul, and Paul is obviously a great comp uh, proponent of this, well, so what is Paul doing with Timothy that he uh, has him circumcised? Why? Well, this is something that's really struck me recently, maybe in the past year or two, that this was that the decision of the council was very specifically about Gentiles who were becoming Christians. Right. That they were not saying okay, we now believe in some new thing called Christianity. We're not Jews anymore. They fully intended that the Jews should go on being the Jews. This was specifically for the Gentiles. And I suspect what's happening here is Timothy was, to Jewish understanding, a Jew because he had a Jewish mother. Right. And so the point was that, well, here you've got this Jewish boy who's never been circumcised. That's not going to fly. Especially if we're saying, okay, the Christians are saying it's okay for him not to be. He's a Jew. He's supposed to be circumcised. Right. I just got scared to death. <laughs> a little sissin. <laughs> Can't open the door behind me. <laughs> oh, you brought, had to call 911. Um, so... <laughs> So, yes, Reed, I, I think that you This was are... an exciting night. <laughs> <laughs> I mowed the lawn, Paul circumcised <laughs> Timothy, I almost had a heart attack. Um, Everybody light a candle so, so Father survives. <laughs> What's next? Um, so, I, I think, Reed, that you're definitely on the right track. I think that also, if you come to see it that way that really problematizes uh i think a lot of uh readings of paul that would be that paul's doctrine of grace is a complete rejection of circumcision right mm -hmm. that that's like a work of the law and that if you were to be circumcised you're thereby abrogating or denying the grace that comes by faith in jesus christ right i mean that's a that that is probably the reading, the popular reading, if you were to look up in Protestant circles. I don't know how, like, then does that mean that Timothy is now doing a work of the law in some way that denies the grace of Jesus Christ? The, the Paul, the like teacher of grace, doesn't understand what, uh, I guess he doesn't understand what later simplifications or reformation <laughs> doctrines of grace uh yeah. but there's I no doubt that paul should have read calvin we all know that so. <laughs> <laughs> uh i do it think is it baffling also... to me it is baffling to me because because he says paul wanted to take timothy to accompany him that makes sense and he took him and circumcised him because of the jews that were in those places Ah, uh, we're like going to get a little bit more here. So what does that mean? Well, he's accommodating the Jews, but then it goes on to say that apparently the reason he's accommodating the Jews 
because they, the Jews knew that his father was a Greek. And at that point, it's gotten so tangled, I can't, huh? So, okay, so he's making him Jewish. But he doesn't need to be Jewish, according oh. to chapter 15. There's yeah. There's I think also I'm the, just uh, restating the question, but I, I mean it is. It no, is I, th I think I think I think you're you're now so I think Ray Reed gave us a good over like historical. I'll just say it like a historical. Obviously, Judaism is still entangled somehow, and Christianity is not this fresh new thing that thereby there's now a completely different thing, and Judaism is passe. It's more complicated than that. Wouldn't it, be now, better, wouldn't it be better to say that Christianity... Paul doing this? I'm sorry. Wouldn't it be better to say that Christianity is still entangled with Judaism? Yes, of course. Rather than Judaism. Uh, yeah. Right. What I'm saying... But I, there are more... Um, there's been clear boundaries that have been drawn up over a confession of who Jesus Christ is. Right. And, a drift away from the early, overwhelmingly Jewish uh, population of the early church. Right. That then basically kind of filters out. And I think because of the decisions that are going on here, circumcision is going to fall by the wayside as Christianity mingles further and further in the Gentile world, etc. And then rabbinical Judaism goes its own route after the destruction of the temple. Um, so yes, Christianity is very much entangled with Judaism, but we're at a different place than they, than we see here in the book of Acts. Right. So we're like estranged cousins. Then it's like when the cousins are fighting, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I'm trying to find a metaphor. Um, I think they were not, they were not estranged yet. Right. They're on their way to becoming estranged. They're on their way to becoming estranged. And it may be, I talk too much, I'll say this to shut up, but it just occurred to me that maybe Paul, I hate to say that Paul could have been fallible, but maybe Paul himself was struggling with the issue and having a hard time distinguishing between, be, 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 between the two. And his instinct was to be Jewish. And, 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 and Christ is an outgrowth of that. There's no question about that. The Christ is, is, is you know, the, the culmination of, 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 the, of, the, of the history of Israel. But, he, but it might be Paul himself is really struggling with the issue, and his natural inclination is to be Jewish. Okay, I'm going to purposely put myself... <laughs> <laughs> he even cut himself off. <laughs> Erica, were you were, I felt you were unmuted at some point. Yeah, just kind of uh, to add to sort of the whole confusion of the topic immediately following uh, him circumcising Timothy, you have verse four where they're delivering to the cities the decisions that had been made uh, by the apostles, aka uh, oh my gosh, uh, yeah, no circumcise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh i think the question that david was getting at there 
is like, what is Paul doing? Which is a different thing than Reed's first comment is to then say, okay, yes. And then now the question is, why did Paul do this? So I'm going to venture a thesis here. This is going to come from uh, the correspondence to the Corinthians, where Paul, and this is something that John Chrysostom very much picks up on in his commentaries on Paul, uh, is Paul's idea of becoming all things to all men. And I think what Paul is doing here is accommodating those who might get tripped up by this with uh, having Timothy going ahead and being circumcised because he does have the Jew, like he's in this kind of weird place, right? He's Jewish, but he also has a Greek father. So I think for Paul's sake, probably he says, you know, he'd probably, I don't think he necessarily sees this as a denial of what's going on in Jerusalem uh, because Timothy is not, you know, uh, a complete Gentile. He has Jewish roots. He has a Jewish mother. And so why not circumcise him in order that there's no stumbling block for the Jews that they're going to encounter on their travels? That, is, that would be my kind of like giving Paul the benefit of the doubt and also light from the way he thinks in other circumstances to try and give Paul that there's an actual reason outside of just trying to like please people <laughs> or, or just trying to like, you know, just make sure that he's Jewish um, out of something inside of him as much as a need that he sees to, in order to make facilitate the preaching of the gospel. If, if it's not a stumbling block for Timothy, then do it. Why not? That's how, that's how I would kind of think about it. Well, and I also think um, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, when he comes back to Jerusalem and the leaders there say, look, everyone's saying that you teach our people not to walk in Jewish ways, but let's show them that that's false. You go ahead and pay the, uh, the expenses for these guys who have you know, taken their oath and are going to go to the temple. And, it's, you know, and plainly, Paul is still practicing all the Jewish things. And so this makes it sound like maybe he's doing the same sort of thing here. It's, you know, it's his own judgment that, well, Timothy's in sort of an iffy place. It's not clear that the council's decision applies to him since he does have this Jewish mother. So in case of doubt, let's do the thing that won't cause offense. Yeah. I, I think you can see here whiz. I mean, you could read this cynically and say, this is just Paul doing i mean that you can read almost everything this way this is a power move by paul to make sure that his point of view is accepted in the early church because he's got uh detractors or i could say this is paul being wise and he's making this move because he realizes that this would be the meet and right thing to do so why not do it it's not in contradiction to jerusalem it's not in contradiction to his teaching uh and I also, I think you get tripped up if you think that his teach, if it is a contradiction of what he teaches, if you start defining Paul's doctrine of grace in particular ways. So this, um, I do find it fascinating that 
um, you have early evidence of a decision by the church actually strengthening people in faith and increasing the numbers instead of becoming a stumbling block for people. Uh, <laughs> that in verse five, that people were actually strengthened in the faith and hearing about what had come from Jerusalem. Uh, these are the days before in, um, folks lost faith in institutions. Uh, so, Philip, uh, does anyone have any other comments about the first five verses? All right, Philip, would you read the next four verses, six through ten? Sure, I'm not seeing anything for some reason. I think I'm, st am I, I'm still screen sharing, right? Yeah, I'm seeing it. Okay. Uh, okay, I've done something on my end, so uh, I'll reluctantly turn the duty over to someone. Oh, no, wait a second. Here we are. My apologies. Okay. Apologies to all. Uh, pick up with six and read unto... Ten, please. Absolutely. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, <clears throat> having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into... Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing, beseeching him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. A lot of fascinating stuff going on in these few verses. The Holy Spirit forbids them to speak the word in Asia. Yeah. What is that about? I thought the Holy Spirit only empowers. It seems like it also denies. Talks amongst yourselves. I'm going to go lock the door so I don't have a heart attack. That would slow things down. Well, where else? Where else are we? Is, is anything forbidden by the Holy Spirit? Are there any examples of that somewhere else? To have this, go ahead, Erica. You just unmuted yourself. No, I just. Uh, I'm not. I'm still pondering. So. All right, you're pondering without me being muted. Um, I I was just wondering please. where. Uh, about other examples of where the Holy Spirit had done something similar? That's a good question. I mean, the first thing that popped in my head was Balaam and the talking donkey. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that popped in your head was Salem and what? Balaam uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, no. you know, on, only the donkey could see. Uh, when God chooses an ass to speak out of. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Yeah. But forbidden? I w I've been sitting here thinking about Thomas. Mm. Go, go on, what do you mean? Thomas went to Asia. Did he not? He so I'm he, wondering if this Asia... As the, isn't he known as the apostle to India? Mm, I think this Asia doesn't mean that Asia. I think okay. this Asia means 
more like Cappadocia, Armenia, like uh, that. What we call Asia Minor, I think, is what this okay. is referring to. Never, nevertheless, the kind of I think what you wonder whether 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 or not the yes. Holy Spirit was sending different apostles to different places, and that and that uh, no, you guys aren't for uh, aren't for Asia. You guys are for Macedonia, and so they went to Macedonia. I, I think you're on to something there, David. Uh, I, I think you see, as we've seen from the very beginning of the book of Acts, that this is um, the writer, Luke, is not taking a, um, as is very common in a lot of church history now, a kind of human sociological view of things, but Luke sees the Holy Spirit operating through all of these things. So this is not a matter of, um, this is an actual divine uh, orchestration, right? That the spreading of the gospel is actually uh, by God's grace and specifically right. through the action of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think it's important that it's under, that it is underlining of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this then happens again in verse 7, uh, that they wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, what do you all think about the fact it goes from saying Holy Spirit and now it says the Spirit of Jesus? What do you think about the phrase, the Spirit of Jesus? I've sort of wondered about that, but never come to any conclusion. This is one of those places... I'd really like to know what the original says, how much is translation and how much is out of the original. On it. <laughs> can you see me typing? Well, I, 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 I can see yeah. it. Uh, what does it mean to be a Karen? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you had. Right, some. What verse were we in there? Seven, and it's I knew my Jesus. In the or spirit, spirit of Jesus. Yeah. Oops, I passed it. Where is it? There it is. Nevma or Numa Yesu. Right here. Do you see it? Here, I'll do it up a little. One second, I'm trying to find the. I highlighted it there. Okay, verse oh. six. What does verse six say? Verse six. Uh, and then verse seven is Jesus, I believe. Yep. So six yeah, says have, Holy Spirit, and seven says the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus and Agio Nevmatos. That's my best uh, ecclesiastical Greek way of saying it too. Instead of just Pnevmatos <laughs> in the Erasmian Greek. So I, the, the reason I even, I'm always, as you've probably already with the book of Acts, these little phrases to me 
are always uh, opportunities because in the same way that the fathers read, you know, if you read Basil's um, treatise on the Holy Spirit, he's looking at prepositions. His argument is about prepositions. So actually attending to the text and what it says is not foreign (laughs) to the Orthodox mind. Uh, And I think um, the reason I even bring this up is because it's kind of like, I don't want us to get into the weeds about the filioque, but I think there can be a hesitancy about calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus because of the filioque. Does that make sense? What I'm without, I probably need to yes. break that down a little bit. But uh, if the Spirit does not proceed from the Father and the and the Son, what is the Spirit being the Spirit of Jesus? Yeah, because when we looked at, it's apparent that in the original Greek, they are two different words, right? What is? What, at, the, at, at the first... They're both, as, uh, They're both spirit. Yeah, before when I was reading, what was the was Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the other one was Spirit of Jesus, and clearly Spirit so, said Jesus. All right, so are these, are these talking about different spirits? I believe that they are. I don't think so. You don't think so? Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't mean I'm right. At. You're wrong because I okay, said okay, that. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't think uh, that the scripture here is talking. I think it would be really odd, as far as I can remember from scripture, to, to speak of Jesus as his spirit and be referring to the person of Jesus Christ, but to, when we're talking about the spirit of Jesus, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, for what it's worth in the Holy... Excuse me. For what it's worth in the Orthodox Study Bible, it, it says, starting with verse 6, uh-huh. now they had gone down through Persia and region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word of Asia. Okay. After they had come to Messiah, they tried to go to Bethania, but the Spirit did not permit. So in the translation... In so the, now, so let's, so let me look at the, so this might be a textual variant. What text are we looking at here, Father? I'm sorry. What text are we looking at? This is is Revised Standard Version, but we looked in the Greek, and the Greek has the Spirit of Jesus. The question is then, what Greek manuscript are we looking at? So I'm going to look at the patriarchal text of the ecumenical throne, (laughs) because that exists. I think I can access the whole thing. Yeah. The Spirit of Jesus. We're in Acts 16. And it's all in Greek. Give me a second. <laughs> the Spirit is different words there. Say what? Spirit is two different words there. Mm, they're just different endings. It's still Nevma. Yes, sir. What do you mean? Yes, sir. 
Hey, look at that deal on Netflix. That's great. I'm going to pull up the Greek text from the patriarchal. Oh, why won't you give it to me? I probably need to do this. There we go. Who knew we were going to pull up a manuscript of the, uh, oh, this is a translation, so. Oh, come on. Oh. Oh, we're going to get there. As long as my wife doesn't have a uh, Zoom meeting that kicks us off. <laughs> and this says here, uh, so when they arrived at the border of Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the spirit did not allow them. And then in the C, it says, C.T. reads spirit of Jesus. So let me go up to the glossary of what C.T. means. So we're looking at a textual variant here. Did you all know that there was a patriarchal text? Nope. So this says modern or reconstructed critical text, which is what the Nestle Allen text, which is what most modern English translations are based off of. So what we might have here, so the patriarchal text, and you can get, you can, you can, do some research from what I understand the patriarchal text is something uh, that is um, has a different uh, set of variants than what uh, so for example the purpose of this edition is to make the reader aware of possible textual variants by footnoting all significant instances where the patriarchal text may not agree with the recepted text the textus receptus the majority text or the critical text so we're not going to get into the weeds and all of this but Basically, uh, I think what is uh, going on here is spirit of Jesus or spirit. We're still talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay. I think it's a, it's a textual variant. So I, I think both of those are fine to basically say. And, and I, I think, again, it underlines the active presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. That they, there's, that they... Uh, understood that they weren't supposed to do this and they weren't supposed to do that. And then they have a another, there's a dream. So here's another dreams throughout scripture are always important uh, or a vision like Peter had earlier. Uh, is this the first? Well, it just says a vision. So that doesn't necessarily mean I, I'm, I, I'm introducing here dream. It, <clears throat> let's look again at the, what if it says, dream or if it just says horama which is different I a spectacle vision something gazed at so something happens uh i guess i was attributing it to a dream but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a dream but a vision kind of like what peter had of the, well, the night that's i think that was part of the reason why i was thinking it was a dream but there, there's something ecstatic vision occurs uh, and we have a man beseeching Paul to come over to Macedonia and help us. They interpret this as God calling them to preach to the gospel there. Okay. And I think it's interesting that they definitely 
had to interpret it. It wasn't simply, oh, God told us to go. It's like, no, we saw a vision. Now we have to reach a conclusion. Yeah. Thank you, Reed. I appreciate that very much. I, I think there is uh, often a in an attempt, and I think there's a good reason for it or rationale behind it or desire behind it of being pious. That means when things happen, it, what my immediate like interpretation of it is what God is saying. And yet, uh, and it seems to somehow remove the critical faculties that we have as human beings of needing to actually interpret things. It's not, things are not immediately evident to us. Um, so I think that relieves us sometimes of needing to uncritically just assent to everything. Now, I think you can also, again, go in too far in the other direction, and then you overthink and criticize, or you're like a, a kind of a cynicism that can grow where you, the miraculous is something that you can't discern anything out of. Um, I've always, something that, and I think that the fathers of the church even reflect on this. You'll have a John of Damascus will talk like this about a question. I think it's even within the, the sayings of the desert fathers, which is something along the lines of why do we not experience the spirit like they did in the early church? Do you all know? I, I mean, I know of some stories that are kind of like this. Is that, am I, am I, uh, I'm pushing it there. It just seems to be with assumptions to me. I... As if this doesn't happen as an assumption? No, as in what, what makes us think that we don't. Yeah, I agree. I think this does happen. So I'll just be honest. This doesn't happen to me. Why doesn't this happen to me? Why doesn't what happen? Mm, this this kind of uh the vision yeah a vision i've never we don't know but we don't know what the vision was that's fair okay I, I, something led me to i don't want to get into a lot of details but let's let's just say that something i mean something definitely led me to the Orthodox Church, okay? And I like where you're going with this, David. I'm I'm purposefully uh, stirring up the water. <laughs> it, yeah, and it, it's just it's just this might actually be a good way to express it. Yeah, uh, it, it, to actually it, discern God active in your life. Uh, through even mundane things like I, we yes. don't know exactly what, why Paul and Silas and Timothy that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Does that mean a bird like like a dove showed up on a branch and said forbidden? I don't think so. No, no. no. That that I, I think there's something more. Um, I, the word hidden is not necessarily the word I would want to use, but something more discerning, something more subtle that I think is actually available to all of us. It depends on how we, 
have where our minds and hearts are to be able to actually discern those kind of signs. I, I mean, I can imagine Paul having a dream and seeing a man in the dream and the man is beckoning to him and he thinks the dream and it just occurs to him and he says to the people around, I, I, I think we're supposed to go to Macedonia. And, and they, they say, why? He says, well, I saw this man in a dream beckoning to me and I just feel like getting us to Macedonia. And when you write that town, it's a vision appearing to Paul in the night of a man of Macedonia standing beseeching him and saying, and help us. You, you understand what I'm saying? I could absolutely. I, 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 think, I, I think my imagination will do it. I, 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 I think sometimes we try to almost over miraculize things. Does that make sense? And I think what you're saying, they could somebody could hear what you're saying and think that you're trying to drain it of the miraculous. And oh, I don't no, not it. at all. I don't, I don't hear it that way. No, 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 no. It's not at all. It's a matter of interpreting your experience. Yes. I agree. And, and uh, I don't. Yeah, I, okay. think, I, I think you've helped. Where's that mute button? <laughs> Reed, Philip, or Erica, do you have any comments on Well, I mean, it does seem like a good question. I know in the evangelical circles that I inhabited for a long, long time, it was very common to speak of, well, God led me to do this. Right. You know, constantly trying to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And over a lot of years, I became convinced that this was mostly delusional. And so... I, I probably am in some danger of leaning the other direction, but I know when I was sort of writing about this at some point to you know, some of the folks where I had been at church, I was saying, it seems that the, the experience of the church is that this sort of visible conscious leading by the spirit is the rare experience of the mature rather than the daily experience of everyone. I appreciate that, Reed. I, and I think that's, <clears throat> again, I come on a kick, uh, the talk that I gave right at the end of Vespers about extremes. You can go kind of, and I'm, I don't mean left and right, but that's, I mean, this is how, you know, I'm oriented in the world in a body, right? There's a left and right. <laughs> so you can go to extreme over here, you can go to extreme over here. And I think uh, to be in the middle, to be sober-minded, but also open and realizing um i mean i look back at the way when i that we even got to st anne's and came to east tennessee the way that i got to seminary which the impetus for me going to seminary was the tragedy of a priest dying in a car accident that was a close friend to us deciding that we we're going to go and then funding just fell into place things just happened and worked out there was a time at seminary where we had a car repair uh, that was going to cost us a thousand dollars. And we we're like, Oh, great. I go to the mail. I open up a letter and from somebody that I kind of had talked to on the internet at one point, six years ago, sent me a check for a thousand dollars. 
Now, do I, so, you know, you could be skeptical and be like, well, that's just a, you know, that's a coincidence. You know, I'm like, I don't think that was a coincidence. That to me seems to be God saying, this is the path that you're supposed to go on. Uh, and I'm also going to encourage and take care of you so that you realize uh, that you are being taken care of and this is the path that you need to go on. Sometimes it doesn't, it's not a thousand dollars showing up in a mail and sometimes it's even suffering that we might encounter that shows us that we're on the right path and the fruit that comes from that. Um, but I think, you, you know, I grew up in circles, Reed, that was almost the other end of things because of kind of almost like a Scotch-Irish common sense uh, rationalism. And Erica, maybe because of the Presbyterians that you grew up in, which are Church of Christ is related to, um, to discern or to talk about the way that a lot of uh, evangelicals talk about is God always kind of leading. Um, it, sent, it seemed like uh, as you were reflecting almost too, like God is domesticated to my whims and et cetera, as opposed to God is definitely at work and bringing things out together for my salvation. I just think it's usually more subtle uh, and there's times where you're able to come out. It's like, be, you know, walking up the side of a mountain and you're like, why am I doing this? And then you get to the top and then you have this vista and you're like, I see why I, <laughs> why I walked up this daggum mountain <laughs> because there's this vista up here, but you don't, you can't discern that until you get to the top there. Um, so I, I think that kind of language, I, I would that we would talk a little bit more like that, I think, because I feel like you, we, we overreact sometimes to that um, domestication. And then we're almost like we're afraid to talk about the presence of God in our life, which is an, the extreme the other way. And we need to be careful of that those either of those extremes. That's why I, I, I've go ahead, Reed. I, I was going to say. I think also there is a difference between saying, I think God is telling me to do something tomorrow, as opposed <laughs> to, I look back over the past 20 years, and I can see God has done some remarkable things in my life through means that I would not have anticipated. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's a bit like prophecy, where if you're trying to anticipate the future and predict what's happening it doesn't work very well but when the events happen the prophecies often become clear oh this was be being fulfilled and so the purpose isn't to sort of satisfy our curiosity about the future so much as to enlighten us to god's hand at work in what has already happened to us yes i think this is true somebody asked me today if i thought this was the end times <clears throat> and my response was we're always in the end times, uh, which I don't think they were very satisfied with my answer. Maybe they were, which I explicated a little bit more of just saying, you know, we talk about the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is always there. It's not that the spirit of Antichrist somehow grows up and like is somehow incarnate in Putin and then something with Iran. I mean, this is like the 80s, right? Like Russia and communism, yeah. and all this jazz. And uh, the spirit of Antichrist is always present. The end is, I mean, we, we are, <laughs> every time we come to the altar, we are at the end of time. Uh, and the end of time is always coming to us. Um, so on, 
yes, I do. I mean, there's a lot of uh, talk about the end of that things aren't going to get progressively better, but things are going to generally towards the end of things, things are going to be pretty bad. But what does that do for my day-to-day life? I think it's trying to discern what the Holy Spirit is wanting me to do and be faithful to the little things so that I can be faithful when it comes down to if I need to confess um, Christ as Lord in situations in the future that might come down to that, then I need to be ready for that. But it's usually not going to be some crazy spectacle. It's going to be, you know, small things where we need to be faithful that will then maybe metastasize into something bigger, but... Uh, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I think in the in COVID era, <laughs> uh, being sober-minded about these things is, is helpful. Um, so, if I could share one more, go ahead. This whole thing about God speaking to us and and visions and so forth. Uh huh. I, I I I should confess. He froze. Say, so I discern that God did not want him to speak. <laughs> what happened? Man, that, that timing was something. Oh, he'll come back. I... Can I mention one other thought while we wait on him? <laughs> sure. I think there's a fairly famous transition in verse 10 here uh, where the pronoun we makes its first appearance. Um, which I think is often taken as being an indication that this is where Luke joined with Paul's party. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, it strikes me that the places that Paul was not allowed to go, among other things, seem to have brought him to the place where he could pick up Luke, if that is in fact the right understanding. <laughs> of nice. Thank you. Thank you for that, Reed. Should we go ahead and read about Lydia here? And then probably we'll have to end here after Lydia for the night because that's a lot of text we're not going to get to. Um, Erica, would you read 11 through 15? Sure. Setting sail therefore from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. From, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatria, a sailor purple goods who was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul and when she was baptized with her household she besought us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us I want to share something with you um Oh, how did I Google this? I had a good friend in seminary who was from Kavala, which is in Greece. And I think you can see on here. He showed us uh, the baptistry of St. Lydia at one point. Uh, 
He now is um, a higher monk, hiero monk of the ecumenical throne. Uh, but I just wanted to show you, there is a great, uh, beautiful church that's built on the place where Paul first comes to Europe. Um, and you can see here this baptistry, and it has, I don't know if you can see this in this one picture. I'm going to see if I can make it bigger. Can you see that all right? Or It's running water. And this is a baptistry they still use to this day that's there uh, in outside of Kavala, which is now what the, is the name for um, Philippi in the modern church. You can see here this baptistry church that is, has the baptistry here in the very middle of the church. Uh, I think of like um, Ravenna has uh, a, a famous baptistry, um, but it's just beautiful to see how the church is still um, alive and active in all the places that Paul, where he first landed. And through me, you know, somebody who's even from the land, like the original lands where Paul first hit Europe. Um, it's also fascinating because from his parents' um, house out the, out the balcony, you can see Mount, the, uh, Mount Athos. The, um, so where this landing is, is very close. Actually, you can see the, um, oh, what would you call it? not promontory, but the basically the little jut out into the ocean that is Mount Athos from uh, Kavala. Uh, so just to bring the text alive uh, with what is actually happening there now, um, and that you have equal to the apostles, St. Lydia there in um, Kavala. That's cool. This will also require somebody to actually have to Google that. So if you Google baptistry uh, in Philippi, you will find this is the first uh, link that pops up uh, if you're not following the, the, the video. So what, what do we make of uh, Lydia here? The seller of purple. So what does that mean? Purple was a very hard uh, color to produce back in the day, and only royalty basically was rich enough to be able to buy clothes that were so purple. What does, so what does that say about Lydia? She's pretty wealthy. Yeah. David, is that what you're going to say about Lydia? Yeah, it ties her to royalty. It ties her royalty. Well, yes. Oh. So why, on the Sabbath day, why don't they go to a, um, a synagogue? That's been their normal routine. Why aren't they doing it here? I've heard it suggested that this would indicate that there was not a synagogue there. And since I think I've heard it took 13 Jewish men to form a synagogue, that would mean the tremendous dearth of Jews in this area. Correct. Yes. I forget what the exact number is, but it's something like 10, 12, 13, or something like that. Um, so we have where, Lydia. Go ahead, David. Where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Right. Right. It's, so the missionary impulse has them seeking seekers 
They're looking for folks who are already open to God. We have Lydia, who is already a worshiper of God. Uh, and we have uh, here the action that opens her heart is the Lord acting upon her heart. And then she's baptized with her whole household. What do you think of her phrase there at the end? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Well, she presumably was not Jewish. I think, I think that's a good assumption. Because she's a worshiper of God, and I forgot right. what those people are called. God fears. Thank you. So it's it's it sounds like, although it's not clear, it sounds like you may have been a God fearer. I think that's right. I do think it go ahead, Reed. I was just gonna ask, do you know anything about the significance of uh going down to the river expecting the place of prayer? Was this either common in the ancient world or was this a specifically Jewish practice so that if there wasn't a synagogue, you went down to where there was water? The only significance I can think of is the song. I don't know how relevant that is, but. <laughs> we went down to the river to pray. Something about them good old days. <laughs> Thinking about that good old day. <laughs> um, I, honestly, I don't, nothing springs to mind. Um, my guess is it was probably a nice place to be. So why not go there when you go out of the city or where people would probably be gathered on it like they would even to this day outside, you know, if you go to a river, you're bound to find somebody. There might be something about... I don't know why, maybe it has to do with different forms uh, of Judaism for evolutions, maybe that because there's not a synagogue, maybe they wanted to do some ritual washings, so they would go to living water like a river. This is me shooting off the hip, so, um, but that's, pretty, that's something that was going on uh, at the time, um, and the Qumran community was like that. Uh, so it might be that there are certain pious Jews that would want to do those kind of actions. That, that, that would be my guess without having, I'll say a very broadly educated mind about it, but not delved into all the specifics, not being an expert on it. Thank you. Well, of course, the, of course, the rivers come up so much, uh, so yeah, so what what do you think this? I mean, the, I use the word symbolically, the, but what do you think is what what do you think is uh, else is going on here? I mean, you talk about you talk about somebody who's Jewish or a God fearing person going to a river, and I I think of the Jordan. Yeah, you can't help but think of the Jordan, right? And baptism, which John she, baptizing in the Jordan. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about our whole household being baptized? I think this is something that we, partly because of being Americans, we don't, we think so individualistically, but Lydia, I, I think what this also tells us mm, probably is that Lydia is either 
a widower, a widow rather, or um, maybe wasn't married, but has a household. But there's something I think uh, if she was the one who followed and did what Paul said, and then her whole household, um, that to me kind of speaks at that time that there's probably not a husband. Um, Cause she seems to be the center of the action that they encounter in Macedonia, which I, I then think is interesting that Paul's vision, he didn't see Lydia. He saw a man calling out. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's something symbolically about that, that vision that he had and obviously not Lydia asking for this, but folks who, who desire to hear this message. Because there's multiple instances, are there not in the in, in, I think in Acts in particular of households being Yeah. Somebody is converted and the entire household is baptized. Yes, that was very that, that was a common thing. I, I think that it shows that you're you're bringing me back to the original point that I wanted to make, which is we think so individualistically that units convert historically it's not typically an individual it's like the whole household converts because the leader right. of the house converts therefore guess what <laughs> yeah. everybody else is getting wet <laughs> <laughs> so i i think that underlines um just the, the the corporate nature of uh Christianity, and I would say just religion generally, it's it's not just this individual affair. Uh, and when the leader of a household converts, that means, I'm going to assume that, that this household doesn't just mean her children or cousins or mother. This would also mean her slaves or her household right. servants. Uh, right. If she's got money like this, that means she probably has a household of some means. Right. Uh, so that again is, I think, hard for us as 21st century Americans to compute, but there it is. I can't help but think of my oldest grandchild. Uh, and my daughter really excited about having her christened uh -huh. when she was eight days old. Is it eight uh -huh. days? Depends and on the tradition. Yeah, and, and and her husband would not let her do it uh, because he's a Protestant. So and he's a Baptist. Christian, you do mean baptized, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because some, some Christianity is what an Episcopalian calls baptism of a newborn. Right. Okay, uh, but well, they do put on the oil, so it's right. kind of a. But anyhow. Baptizing, and uh, uh, because her husband's a, a raised as a Baptist, right? And and in the in contemporary Protestant thinking, of course, the decision to be baptized has to be a rational adult decision. Uh, and and uh, it's interesting to contrast that with thinking about this, where whole households got baptized. Uh, you weren't even asked. Uh, and the way the Old, I, Test, the way the Old also, Testament operates is by families. Yeah. It's not by individuals. I mean, I there's individuals think, who are called out, but it's all, it affects an entire community. 
community. Yeah. Abraham had a whole entourage. It wasn't just Abraham. Mm -hmm. I also think of St. Vladimir in the city of Kiev. Yeah. I mean, St. Vladimir just announced the city of Kiev was going to be baptized. It ordered everybody down to the river, and they were all baptized. And that's yeah. a thousand years later. Right. You know? I mean, this uh, can, of course, go bad, right? Like, there's element here where then you could say everybody's going to get baptized. Uh, here's or here's my sword. <laughs> so yeah. that's a bad way to do that. But I think there's also a gen a interesting. Um, we so value the autonomous individual that it's hard for us to wrap our heads around group conversions in a ways that we would many of us would deem like legitimate because it's like, well, they didn't really believe, you know what? When I was baptized the way I believe, like does not match how my, the debt, like my faith, I hopefully I've grown since then. So some of these ways that we try to make these decisions, I think are trying to put boxes and stuff around things that just at, some, at the heart of it. And this is not a ducking of the problem is a mystery. <laughs> um, to show the desire to be baptized does not mean that you fully understand the Trinity uh, or what you're even professing or the life that you need to live now. Because if that's the truth, then I don't, I don't think anybody would really be baptized until they're much older. <laughs> no, I personally was baptized in a Presbyterian church when I was eight days old. Oh, I'm not always sure that my knowledge had grown that much since then, but we, we tried. <laughs> I was about three weeks old, so yeah, I, I also had very little knowledge at the time. Uh, I, I do think there's... Uh, I'm not even, sure I understand more about the Trinity than I did then. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should uh, stop with the conversion of Lydia, and then we can talk about Paul and Silas and their sojourn in jail next time. Uh David, when you cut out earlier, you were about to say something. Do you remember what it was? Oh, yeah. I was sharing how many years ago I began in centering prayer, which is based on the cloud of unknowing, which is learning how to sit in silence and, 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 and as a form of prayer. And that it's very fundamental to that prayer that... that uh, the truth is, God speaks to us constantly. We just don't pay attention. And that's become a very big part of my faith. And I think that's one of the reasons why, when I read about visions of St. Paul and all these other things, mm -hmm. I, I don't. I, I don't wrestle with them like I, I used to because of my personal experience through, 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 through silent prayer and through silence generally and, and, and trying to learn, learn how, how to listen to God and sometimes getting a sense of what it is that he is saying to me. You know, it's just, I, well, and I think, it all I think sounds quite natural to me. Well, anyhow, I don't know. Yes, but I, and I think that is viable and workable. And I think you would totally agree with me here that I'm not, I'm not contradicting anything you're saying. Uh, viable within the context of the um, 
liturgical, ascetical life of the church that kind of provides those boundaries. And it's not just an emptying of self for whatever comes along, but it's a very specific setting aside of the ego and allowing that space for God to actually, for like, as you said, to, to hear him. Instead of most of the time, our mind is like, blah, 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 blah. It never stops. And we don't we don't ever even give it the time or the space to say, shut up for a minute. So I can actually think about like God. Yeah, well, that's the distinction between Eastern contemplative prayer and Western contemplative prayer, if you will. Eastern contemplative prayer is very much about the emptying of self and tricky, but it's Western yeah. contemplative prayer is much more about the opening of self. The techniques look similar and the words often sound similar in contemplative prayer. We often talk about emptying ourselves. When we talk about emptying ourselves, we're really talking about emptying ourselves of our false selves. And I don't want to get into a long discussion of it, but I just wanted to get to, yeah, it's, it's really a matter of opening yourself and, 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 and learning how to disregard that noise because the monkeys in the tree never shut up. You know, it's a matter of opening yourself up. And learn how to disregard the noise of your brain so you can hear. That's all. Now I think Father Daniel's frozen. Just Father Daniel. Oh, we don't need him anyway. <laughs> I hope he stopped recording. <laughs> the big uh, red dot is still on the top there. Oh, dear me. Oh, you're right. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm the host now. Oh, you are? This? I guess it's because I was the second one here. I think it defaults to yes, it does. the first person who comes. That's not the host. Okay. If you want to stop recording. Um.